a key for any leader is to see the patterns in experience and act and get better all the time. Welcome to Leading Forward, where we explore how successful leaders and organizations thrive in spite of, and sometimes because of, challenge and uncertainty. I am your executive coach and host, Christy Berger. Welcome. Today's guest, I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Bernstein. He is the partner and chair of the Nashville-based law firm, Waller, Lanson, Dorch, and Davis. Waller is um, one of the oldest law firms here based in the Nashville area, which I'll let Matt speak to that a little bit more. Um, Waller was named one of the best law firms for women by Working Mother and was spotlighted by Chambers Associates as one of the nation's leading firms for recruiting, retaining, and supporting legal talent. Nashville's largest law firm by the Nashville Business Journal was also honored as the Best Places to Work program. Um, I am excited to have Matt give us a little bit more insight to what has led to all those wonderful accolades. Um, But I want to share a little bit more about Matt. So as I mentioned, he is a partner of the firm, and he has served as the chair since 2014. Matt is a graduate from Vanderbilt University Law School, and he has himself been recognized um, by many achievements and awards, one being by Chambers USA as one of the best lawyers and many other publications for his experience leading corporate and commercial transactions. Welcome, Matt. I'm so excited to have you today. Christy, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm excited as well. Yeah, well, um, I'd like to, uh, for those listeners that may not be familiar with Waller, I'd like you to give them a little bit more insight about the firm. Well, disappointing if they're not, but I'll try to talk about Waller for <laughs> just j- just briefly. Uh, Waller is a uh, uh, law firm of 270, 280 lawyers headquartered in Nashville with offices in uh, Austin, Texas, Birmingham, Alabama, and Chattanooga, Tennessee as well. Uh, Waller is, uh, we are think of ourselves as full service, and that means that we have the capabilities to provide services to uh, clients large and small from the uh, Fortune 100 down to uh, mom and pops selling their business or get, getting into uh, uh, lawsuits. But we have really deep uh, expertise and experience over decades uh, in healthcare and healthcare services. It's probably our flagship uh, practice. We've been uh, central to Nashville's uh, presence in investor-owned hospitals and surgery centers and, and today uh, physician practices. In addition to healthcare, uh, finance and financial services is an important industry to us. And we also uh, work hard to develop and project our expertise in real estate, commercial development, as well as private equity. So we uh, full service, but really have selected a few industries of strategic focus because we long ago decided you can't be all things to all people. Yes, and you, you you may have learned that through a little bit of uh, trials and tribulations, um, and really finding out how do we um, really leverage and, ex- and expand the areas of expertise that create the most value for the market and for the firm. Right there's the the balance around learning that as we yeah. as we go as an organization. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, I think for a long time, you know, the legal industry hasn't always looked as it does today, and for a long time. The doctrine of bigger is better has been thought to be superior and that, uh, say, uh, profitability and success would follow size and what the literature shows that that's not true. Um, 
There's no question that bigger law firms uh, have the uh, ability to afford a, a lot of things that small law firms cannot. But once you reach a scale, and we're certainly there, we're able to hire the best talent in the market. We're able to uh, develop the best talent in the market. We're able to deploy technology that uh, for our, the benefit of our clients. And so we're there and a size, uh, we're at a scale that lets us to, uh, serve the largest clients out there. You mentioned the talent and really looking at recruiting and sourcing and developing and supporting the best talent. Um, how, what has been the strategy around that um, as you and your colleagues and the fellow partners and board board members? Um, how do you guys address that and plan for that and, and see it as a strategic priority? Well, let me start by saying um, it is a fact about the legal industry that I think probably eludes people who are, most people who are not lawyers, and that is that uh, ethical constraints prohibit non-competes among lawyers. And they also, for the most part, although this is starting to weaken in certain jurisdictions, for the most part, prohibit ownership of law firms by people who are not licensed attorneys. And so the, the effect of, of the, say, uh, illegality of lawyer non-competes is that if you think about a law firm, our assets are the people. We don't have any particular intellectual property. We have a great brand name, uh, particularly in healthcare and finance. But it's really the strength of the individuals who practice the law and attract the clients and, and deliver the excellent service. So our only assets leave the building every single night. And because of the absence of non-competes, I just hope they come back the next day. And they do. And so when we think about a talent strategy, if you will, I think it's, it's obviously two things. And anybody in business knows what the two things are. And that's one, uh, retaining the talent once you have it. And two, making sure that you're bringing the right talent into the firm. I think any, any disciple of Jim Collins knows get the right people on the bus. Uh, that's not the easiest thing to do in either case. We're not the only firm out there with, with a, a great clientele. I'm extremely proud of what we have, but there's lots of, of law firms out there and lots of them who are not in Nashville, uh, our headquarters city, that would like to be in Nashville. So when we think about it, and I guess the way I conduct business all day, every day as the chair is to make it such that people want to spend their careers at Waller because that's the only way Waller accomplishes what it what it does. We cannot do anything without uh, partners wanting to be here, staying here, and developing the junior people. You know, another thing that, that may not be obvious to, to your viewers is the multi-generational nature of a law firm like Waller. Uh, I am, I'm invigorated every time I come to work because I get to be around smart, ambitious people ranging from 25 years old to 75 years old and everywhere in between, everywhere in between. And so we have classes uh, every single year of new people. And so when you think about developing that talent and retaining it, you really have to uh, offer a product, if you will, to those people that is appealing to the 25-year-olds, the 45-year-olds, and the 65-year-olds. So uh, I don't know that we have any grand strategy. I, I Law firms probably talk about it and hire a bunch of people with fancy titles to uh, to 
develop those programs and, and that sort of thing. But really when it comes down to it, I think it's, it's being humane, uh, removing impediments to people being their, their best selves at work and, uh, making the law firm the type of place that I would want to work. Yeah. So, you know, in that, it, you know, I think that was really helpful, Matt, and kind of giving us the background of how we look at a professional services firm, such as a law firm, um, and looking at that variance, and that range of talent. And that's not unlike many other organizations in, in, in all industries that are faced with looking at how do they attract the best talent and then keep them there, keep them engaged where, like you said, they want to come back um, each yeah. and every day and give their all um, and, and make that and, um, and it really and make that impact in the organization and also be fulfilling for their own purpose and their own um, experience in that. So you referenced in there a little bit about your, you know, the leadership aspect. So I'd like to maybe ask you a question around how do you look at um, your own leadership approach and, and kind of what do you think about that and what are you mindful of? It's not something I dwell on uh, a ton. You know, I'll make an observation, which is that the legal services industry, probably like accounting firms, uh, uh, maybe other than the big four, but uh, you know, law firms tend to promote their chief executive officers. And I, I don't go by that title, but that's essentially what, what I, you know, small C, small E, small O, uh, we tend to elect and appoint our chief executive officers from practicing lawyers. So I've never run a company before, much less a nine-figure business. And so I don't purport to be an expert on uh, any of the things that I'm called upon to do all day, every day. And I think everything that I do probably starts with that self-recognition. And it really starts with some humility, and I mean genuine humbleness, not fake uh, fake humbleness, but uh, genuine humbleness that I can be wrong any given day. I need to project confidence, and I need to make decisions, uh, not let decisions sit for too long. They don't get any better when hard things are presented, but to start with the proposition that my gut may not be accurate every time. Uh, I like to surround myself with people who allow me to think out loud as opposed to, you know, one thing I learned very early in this job is that if I'm just talking out loud, thinking out loud, maybe even posing questions, there are people who will hear me say something and interpret that as policy to be implemented. And so I have to be very careful that anything that escapes my lips be be uh, ready to be acted upon or, or be told, hey, we're just talking about this sort of thing. So I guess from, from leadership, uh, from the, the fundamentals of leadership, um, a, a humility, but then also a genuine love of the organization. There is no substitute for that. Um, I don't believe that I could leave Waller and become the chief executive officer, chair, managing partner, whatever, what, what have you, of some other the 275 lawyer law firm and do as good a job. Uh, the, the, what, what our law firm means to me and means to so many other people drives me all day, every day, even among the most challenging circumstances as certainly the last seven or eight months have been. And so uh, those two things I think should underpin any leadership style, uh, any, any leadership effort at the top. 
You know, Matt, I just want to I want to highlight what I heard there, because um, I think it's so important for those that are listening here um, is that what I hear and the way you're looking at your approach to leadership is that you're not the expert. Um, There is humility in knowing that you don't always need nor have all the answers. So it's really in your in your learning as you're doing the hindsight 2020, right, is that, you know, being able to understand is that being explicit in the way in which you process information, make those decisions, especially as you make a leap um, into a higher level leadership position, such as the, you know, the chair, is you had to, you had to learn maybe the hard way um, that that being explicit with your style and your approach and understanding the amplification of your role and your words. As, as leaders move up, that is a critical um, transition to make and understanding of that. Um, and so there's probably a higher level of discernment now um, when you do share your thinking and how you share your thinking. Absolutely right. You're, 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 you're dead on on that, Christy. And, you know, as you were talking, it, it also struck me that um, one thing that I've had to learn, I'm not right all the time. I've made lots of mistakes. Uh, maybe, maybe not all day, every day, because that would be a pr- pretty poor batting average. <laughs> but uh, it's being able to learn from the mistakes that you make and see the patterns. Uh, somebody said, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes and, and mm-hmm. fact patterns will pop up uh, six months, 18 months down the road that resemble in certain ways. And you can, you can sort of predict outcomes. So I think the, a key for any leader is to see the patterns in experience and act based on that and get better all the time. The organization could not handle me making the same mistakes Mm -hmm. over and over. And so that's something that I need to uh, pay attention to. Absolutely. So that just underscores that we're always learning and the best leaders realize that, that there is a, it's an iterative process. It's a process of evolution and, and maturation that never ends. Um, so I think that's really important. I want to um, also highlight the other important thing that you noted there in your answer is that there's a genuine care, care for the organization and care for those that are with that are leading and operating within the organization, the people, not just internally, but externally um, within the clients that you serve and the communi- community that you're in. Um, so that genuine care is non-transferable, it sounds like, from the way in which you're looking at that. And that's probably because you've established those connections and you've also had um, some deep experiences over the course of your tenure there. Yeah, I'd say you're right. You know, one thing we talk about a lot, and I know a lot of uh, law firms would use this phrase, but we expect really demand from our partners to have what we call an ownership mentality. And that is to approach uh, every circumstance with what is the uh, desirable outcome, what is the pro-firm approach, et cetera. And I really take very personally the idea that I have to have more of an ownership mentality than everybody else, uh, than than any single person. I am the one who, in every circumstance, needs to think about what is the pro-firm approach, not what is the pro-mat approach. In fact, I've made the observation to people before, I'm not sure I have any um, personal interests that, that, well, uh, I shouldn't say personal interest, that's, that's a misleading term, but that uh, what's good for me 
doesn't really even factor in because it is a it is a firm wide thing. We have 150 partners, uh, and 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 any leader who's not spending their time thinking about what is best for the whole organization, uh, or or becomes clouded as to self interest or anything like that, that that's that's going to set up for a suboptimal situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a a topic that I am constantly working on, whether it be with individuals or with leadership teams to ensure we are making decisions and looking through the lens of the enterprise, whether it be the firm, organization, whatever your respective area or um, industry is, but we're taking that view. It's, It's broader. And then we know when to tether down to our respective areas whether it be individually, team, function, so forth. Um, so that is a critical point um, of transition that you're, that you're referencing there as, as leaders develop and in really being able to know and have the discernment of when they need to operate at an individual level all the way up through the enterprise level. But by the time you get to, uh, to be a chair or CEO, um, you're more often than not looking through the lens of the enterprise. Um, yeah, for- absolutely the most, most of those decisions. Um, I'd like to just kind of segue a little bit. I'd be remiss not to talk about, you know, the, the um, impact of the challenges that we've all faced um, here in 2020 and that we're still in. So I'd love to hear Matt um, around, you know, what have you learned as a leader? We'll stay at the leadership um, lens right now. What have you learned um, about yourself as a leader in navigating these last you know, six, seven, eight months, and and um, and how have you shifted, if you have, the way in which you lead? Hmm. Oh, Christy, I might be hard pressed to to divine leadership lessons this close to it. Uh, this this close, as you say, we're we're still in the middle of it. Uh, I do think, and this is something that has struck me increasingly as we go along, that the pressure that I apply in terms of organizational development, organizational change really needs to be tempered at a time like this. There's no question that our industry, uh, the the pace of change in our industry is accelerating even absent the pandemic, but the pandemic is probably forcing uh, five to 10 years of evolution into one to two years. And for for one thing, it's not anything that uh, I had a playbook back in March scripted as to how to deal with. So I am learning and discerning in the same way that, I, that all other leaders and partners and associates in law firms are. Uh, but it's having some judgment around what are we going to push on? What are we not going to push on? How are we going to uh, accommodate different needs for high and low tempo at this time. Not everybody is in the same position. Uh, I think it could stress organizations like ours uh, in in the long run to have uh, the circumstances that we have. I won't even, we don't have time and not even going to get into the difficulties of remote work or the the benefits of remote work that that we could cover an entire hour. And and our business has some uh, idiosyncrasies in that a lot of businesses can hire their people trained already and they can work wherever we take on the job of uh, teaching a whole bunch of people to do what we do. And, to, mm-hmm. and, to, and so that has some particular challenges, but I guess the, the one leadership lesson I have is, uh, is to 
really think through what you're going to ask the organization and its people Mm -hmm. to do in a time of turbulence. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that's a very poignant because it's really talking about pausing for a moment, even as the train is really going fast and that, that, that train of change, um, in, in pausing, but then being able to step back and say, we may need to recalibrate our strategy and our expectations. And we may need to continue to recalibrate in a much shorter variable of time in between versus what we would do in maybe normal, normal circumstances. Yeah. You know, Christy, I've, I've personally had the, 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 the sentiment that um, a lot of the things that I do on a day to day, week to week basis involve uh, being present with clients, either existing clients or developing new clients. Uh, getting out and meeting people. I want to come join Waller as new partners. And that can be in uh, Washington, D.C. or Austin, Texas, or as as easily as it probably more likely than it is in Nashville. Uh, but all of that kind of ground to a halt in the first few months of this pandemic. It's, it's unfrozen to some extent at this point, but it's still a, a challenge. And so for what I find for myself is what am I, what am I going to spend my time in, on doing pro-organization when it's not, when the, when what I've been doing is difficult to do. Yes, absolutely. I don't have, I don't have a simple answer for that, but, uh, but I filled my time quite nicely. (laughs) We, we had that moment of, oh no, right. And in those first, you know, month or six to eight weeks. And then it's been interesting to see, we've, we've adapted and adjusted. And that's really what you're referencing and figuring out whether it be the work from home, work from anywhere, or how we still engage with our employees, our team members, or our clients in the community. So it is um, something that we've been able to, it sounds like, and you've been able to to pivot. And your calendar is still just as full as it was before. It is, but you know, there's the there's the the classic square of of urgent, not urgent, important, not important. And if you live in the urgent, you're not going to get to the not urgent but important stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself wanting to really, I guess this is really to hit it, hit it firmly. Um, I find myself wanting to get to that square of not urgent, but important, the long-term things, but that's where I have to temper myself because that's what takes the most organizational uh, resilience and willingness to go along. And the organization is not disposed over the last seven months and today towards really accommodating them. Absolutely. So it's kind of being um, mindful and willing to put the brake on just a little bit as the as the pedal still on and the foot still on the gas. That's right. And it's, it's, and it's oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and it's just having that awareness of how, how much I can push, just how much I can push based on the insight and temperature within your respective organization. Absolutely. And to come back to the original uh, thesis, if you will. The firm expects me to have our strategy charted and know it backwards and forwards and know how best to implement it. But I have to always allow for the possibility that even if I wanted to push on the firm in a particular direction, I've got to, I always have to be reading the room Mm -hmm. and uh, making sure I'm in the right direction. I I say it from time to time. uh, I am not the Elon Musk of law of the legal industry. Uh, I have, I feel like I've spent a, a, the last six years really in uh, maintenance and incrementalism, 
which has its own virtues as opposed to visionary leadership uh, where we're going to take the organization someplace it never thought to go. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk types. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's not been my leadership style. And and I'm okay with that. Uh, So in a pandemic time, I think that's a good, that's an okay place to be because it's it's going to be more difficult to be visionary and take take the organization someplace it hadn't previously wanted to. Matt, I, I like that. And I'm so happy you referenced this because we're talking about leadership style, but we're also talking about understanding what style to utilize in the given context of not just the overall and the macro level of the market and what's going on externally, but also understanding where your organization is along the growth curve. So, you know, at different points, and there's a lot of literature and research around this, but, you know, the maturation of an organization from startup to just accelerated growth or, or kind of maintaining that. Um, growth, you, there, it requires a different type of leadership. And so, in, in, I think it's really important to highlight that, that you're in tune with where your organization is now, and then you add on the, the external circumstances that your style and approach is probably exactly what's needed. I hope so, Christy, but, <laughs> We're but go again, with that, Matt. We're going I'm going to go with it. Um, but, but, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't used the phrase, read the room, but, I, but yeah. having, having uttered it, I think that's what I truly have to do all day, every day is read the room and see what, what can I reasonably accomplish? Absolutely. And when I stop reading the room accurately, I'll know I've got a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in working with um, leaders is that you, you got to learn to read the room, but then you also have to learn how to um, get feedback or other data sources to ensure that your reading is accurate. Yeah, so it's a little bit of both because we have that um, sometimes that subjective lens isn't like you said to reference what you mentioned earlier may not always get it right. So that humility yeah. and a, a willingness to um, garner that that and solicit that input is critical too to ensure that the that you're aligned on on what you're reading. Yes. So. Um, I, I, you know, the, we have just a little bit of time left together, Matt, and I just want to ask you as we kind of look broader. Um, you know, and saying in light of the, the circumstances is as you look ahead, you know, what opportunities do you see um, and what are you most excited about in reference to for your industry and maybe even particularly your, your firm? Hmm. Well, uh, I'll start with, with my firm. Uh, Waller is, has an extraordinary depth of expertise, and I would put us against any firm in the country in terms of our expertise in our particular industry, strategic focus, which I've already outlined, and combine that with our uh, price point uh, at which we sell. We're not the cheapest. Don't aspire to be the cheapest. You can't be the cheapest and have the kind of talent it takes to, to do bet the company litigation and bet the company transactions. That's just a, a simple uh, calculus there. But I'm really excited about our positioning. I'm really excited about our calibration of uh, supply and demand in our law firm. And we've taken uh, great pains over the last several years to bring that into focus. Uh, so I think we have uh, limitless opportunities. There's no question that there are a lot of very, uh, there are outstanding, well-financed firms, particularly in major financial centers, uh, but they don't have a monopoly on good client service or uh, doing what we do for the clients who aren't interested in paying a thousand or twelve hundred dollars an hour. So our people should be really excited. The opportunities are there. We just have to go get them. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of the legal industry, the industry, as I said a little bit ago, is really in flux. And I I candidly don't know how and whether to be excited about it, because I think there will be clear clear winners and losers. Um, The industry is evolving to permit uh, alternate ownership. So you see this in the states of Arizona and Utah right now, uh, as well as abroad, where uh, bars are allowing people who are not lawyers to own interests in law firms. So, so five, 10 years from now, what, the, what could that mean? That could mean a venture capital or private equity owned law firm, which is unthinkable today. The level of, uh, yeah. combine that with the breaking down of the barriers probably between the large accounting and consulting firms and the practice of law, which, which you're starting to see, uh, even if it's not even if the ethical rules don't allow the complete breakdown of the, the barrier, there, there are plenty of inroads. So those forces combined are going to really shape the legal industry dramatically over the next 10, 15 years. But not all legal industry. We're still going to have trials. We're still going to have lots of work that is committed to law firms, uh, small and medium-sized law firms, uh, the question is, what kind of scale is necessary to serve the kind of clientele we do, which is where uh, there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of uh, people can't be wrong. We can't dabble in it. We can't be a budget choice and, and, and get away with stuff. That's, that's just not where we play. So anyway, uh, I, I probably am uh, prattling on well past the, the, the boundaries of the question, but uh, those are things that that I think about a lot. And again, I don't think there's anybody in the legal services industry who has an answer that is all things for all people or that uh, could be taken and applied to any firm. Right. I, I would agree. You know, it, it, it's, it's too, that's too simplistic and unrealistic to think that it would be applicable across the board um, for pretty much any, in any industry. But that's what's so great is that as a, as an organization or a firm such as Waller, you get to kind of carve out what your value proposition is. For, for your customers, your clients, and then for your internal, um, in this case, the partners and associates and all of the support um, colleagues that you have, um, which really, you know, I like to kind of maybe end where we started um, when we were talking about the culture piece, right? We're a lot of how do you keep folks engaged and inspired and, and connected to the organization? Um, and I just want to um, hear your thoughts on, on any maybe points for our listeners or, or ideas or resources or th- how you look at that in maintaining the culture, in, in especially during kind of these times where there may be more um, work from work from home, where people aren't as connected. Um, there's just a little bit more uh, variability around that. Um, no so so um, kind of give us a little bit of insight to, you know, how you're continuing to support and drive the culture um, during this time. I'll make one preliminary observation, Christy, which is I think when the word culture is applied to any organization, particularly at a law firm, where most people's minds immediately go is to, are the people friendly with one another? Do I have an open door at my office or do I come in and shut it and not interact with people? Do I see, do the uh, organization members see one another and their families outside of work time? And that's where people feelings about culture immediately go. And I want to emphasize that that's very far from the only dimension of culture. That is a dimension of culture and one that 
Waller's the only law firm at which I've ever worked, but I'm assured by everybody who comes to Waller that Waller has a, a comparatively outstanding culture from that perspective. But the other cultural dimensions are something we've already touched on, like uh, uh, ownership mentality, firm firstness. Are you going to take every opportunity to speak well of your partners in front of other people? Are you going to take every opportunity to uh, introduce a partner for the partner's benefit, even if the benefit to yourself is modest, if non-existent. Uh, beyond that, uh, the culture, imparting the culture of, of firm firstness, if you will, to the people with whom you work. Are you going to do that and insist upon that? Because that's not always easy. Uh, it's not always easy to uh, do the hard things about firm firstness, but are you going to take the time and impart that to the junior people with whom you work? Uh, so in terms of keeping culture, um, in terms of, of propagating our culture within the firm and keeping it instilled, I've actually been extremely encouraged over the last seven, years, seven months. I would have thought that, that would have been the first thing to break down in, in, a, uh, in a remote environment. And really, it hasn't. I think the longer we persist, the more difficult it becomes. For example, we, we added 17 new lawyers uh, in the firm entry level out of law school, 17 of them uh, earlier, uh, last month. And in this environment, it's going to be difficult to impart that culture to them. It's going to be difficult to uh, supply them with meaningful professional development. I'm not saying impossible. It just takes something that we haven't previously had to really focus on and be great at in a remote environment. And so I think there's tons of work to do. Nobody's at the finish line on any of this stuff. But uh, if people, if you go back to the concept of do people genuinely have a love for the organization, uh, I think you could look at um, the, the durability of partners' relationships with Waller and the decades that uh, partners are, are willing to spend and the affinity that they have for one another. And, and on top of all that, or maybe underneath it, is a, a primacy of client service and meeting those needs and making clients look good and making their uh, deals and cases come out well, the culture really comes through and, 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 and will persist and, and thrive. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one thing you pointed out there is around um, bringing on new colleagues during this time and, and that you have to look at that different to ensure that there's assimilation and you're driving that connection and you're onboarding and, and you're bringing them into that fold so they can connect to the culture and the colleagues that are there. So, well, um, thank you, Matt, on providing that insight. I, I have to ask this um, maybe out of a left field question. Uh -oh. so in, our, in our research for our talk today, you know, we ran across that you had dedicated and committed to run a marathon in every state. So where are you at on that? Uh, I am at uh, 43 states, uh, wow. so seven to go. Um, it's been a really, it, it's been a great journey. I mean, I, I probably run, I started when I was 30 years old and I'd hoped to do 50 by 50. Uh, I'm not going to make it, <laughs> but uh, I, it's been a great, great way to connect with people. I've spent, I've made a, a bunch of great relationships and friends and, and, and then also see the United States and my favorite marathons are one, are in places where I'm unlikely to have a, a reason to go back. And so uh, probably the last 20, I've made a, a concerted effort to go to places where 
to choose to go to Yuma, Arizona instead of Phoenix. And uh, so it, it's, uh, it's been a great journey for me. I've really enjoyed oh. it and staying healthy. That's great. I was going to say, it's kind of two birds with one stone. You're expanding your horizons and, and those experiences. And hopefully your, your family's probably a part of that to some degree. And then, and then you're staying healthy, right? So um, that's it's right. Win-win. I have, I didn't win any of those 43 marathons. Though, Christy. <laughs> We're not going for the gold, right, Matt? That, that's uh, right. That's so. right. Oh, uh, well, thank you so much, um, you know, for, for being a part of um, the show and for sharing your experiences, your insights, and and um, just as importantly, you know, sharing with our listeners um, a little bit more about Waller. Delighted to do it. I'll see you All again. Right. Thank you for joining us. To listen to future episodes, you can subscribe to the Leading Forward podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. For those of you who enjoy the full experience, you can watch the conversations as they unfold at christyberger.com. Until next time, keep leading forward.